0: Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about the strange decline of Manchester United politically. All super clubs, so you're talking Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, Liverpool, Barcelona, AC Milan, Juventus. They're not just football teams. They take on, they're so, they loom so large Both nationally and internationally and you know, that they've had such long periods of success and dominance you know they have fans all over the country all over the world that whereby if you take a mid table outfit like a brighton for example they're important locally but in the end it's just going to be a case of you hire the manager the best manager that you can find you have a philosophy and for the most part that's not you know it's relatively straightforward in terms of what you're trying to achieve how you're trying to grow you build the training ground you build the stadium you're trying to just get better bit by bit you're trying to stay in the league however when you're talking about a super club it's always much more three dimensional there's you know are you following the history of the club you know what impact does that have does it have on the rest of the league? I mean, classic example would be um, Calcio Poli, when Juventus got relegated to Serie B, and so in other words, not only when they got back to Serie A, they had a couple of years where they were finishing seventh, and they were just weren't the Juventus of old, and that opened the door for a sort of long, you know, short period of success for Inter Milan, and that really reset Italian football for about you know maybe best part of maybe half a decade. In the same way that, you know, the decline of Manchester United has changed. You've opened up the, you know, Man City have filled that gap. You know, you've had Chelsea under Abramovich. And Liverpool after being taken over by the Fenway group. And so to bring it back to Manchester United, really what has precipitated their decline? You could, you know, I can imagine a set of Man United fans would immediately blame the Glazers. So to say that they are, you know, the owners of the club and that anything that, you know, any failures of Manchester United really stems from them. And they would have a point. A different group of people would say that, you know, the Glazers had success when Sir Alex Ferguson was in charge, so it wasn't necessarily them. And that it's, you know, Ed Woodward is the person making the decisions. On you know day to day basis, and that the glazers are really just writing the checks, a different group of man United fans might sit there and say that it's the managers the managers have had you know huge amounts of money, there's a large amount of resource there's been talent coming from the youth system, and that really you know if there's a vacuum, they haven't filled that vacuum, they haven't done a good enough job, and that you know man United are. Far behind, you know, in terms of infrastructure, Man City, and in terms of actual performance, you'd have to say Liverpool by an extended gap. You know, even with you know, can Chelsea, and you've even allowed you know the likes of Spurs sort of, you know, Leicester are really competing with Manchester United in a way that you know, ten fifteen years ago would have just been completely unimaginable. So I think what this podcast is really aiming to do is. What was the, the policies that Manchester United have done? What is What political structure have they... Have they had in the post Sir Alex Ferguson years? And in what way has that contributed to the current situation? Where they've been knocked out of the Champions League. At the moment, realistically, they're not in a title race. They're really looking for a top four finish. They have a manager that is... You know, one of the favourites to be sacked. And really, a whole period of time, of there's such a huge amount of angst around the club. There's always the sense that there's a crisis just around the corner. So, let's take the previous manager. If we take Jose, and why has Jose now having some success at Spurs which he couldn't really achieve at Manchester United? So, why has Jose been successful at Tottenham? You could argue that the squad is talented. It wasn't overtly old. It wasn't an ageing squad that needed a full rebuild. But it wasn't overtly young. It wasn't a situation, sort of David O'Leary at Leeds, where you're constantly having, you know, you're talking about the kids all the time. So there wasn't a sense that you had to do a tear down. There was an element that if you got the decisions right, it would be a relatively quick turnaround. The fact the club is well run in comparison to United. Daniel Levy is better at. You know, running a Premier League, a high-end Premier League football club, than Ed Woodward, it's more stable, it's more strategic. You know, if you look at the infrastructure, you have a brand new world-class training ground, a brand new world-class stadium. You know, the fact is that yeah, United have a productive youth academy, and they've just recently had to spend some money to start improving things. But you know, so is Tottenham's youth academy has been productive. You know, the fact the squad was well-balanced, there wasn't a huge amount of glaring holes, and, you know, it was obvious what signings they need to make. You know, Hoiberg, bring in another right-back. And the thing is, is that it, one front office and one manager had put that together. So you'd had five years of Rosso Pochettino, and so as a result, the squad was more complimentary. It wasn't perfect, but there was at least a sense that the signings they'd made in the preceding years were all, you know, Aiming to get Tottenham into a yeah, you know, they were rebuilding, but you know, you signed Tunga and Dembele, you signed Giovanni Lo Celso, they they were kind of replacements for Christian Eriksen. You know, so it's more complementary. Whereby United, the squad that, you know, Mourinho picked up was Scattergun. It was a little bit of David Moyes, a little bit of back end of Sir Alex Ferguson, and you had Louis Van Gaal. And all of those different Viewpoints. A lot of these signings were quick signings, or some of them were panic buys. There was no sense of you could sit there and plot it out. In the end, you had a talented squad, but it was a bloated squad. There wasn't an obvious, you know, political solution. It wasn't a situation of saying, "Okay, we'll go ultra defensive," or "We'll go ultra attacking," or "Well, we'll keep the ball," or "We'll press." It was very much you almost had too many options, but n- but no. Philosophy, not one that you would, that wouldn't take two or three years. And Manchester United as a club is so politically huge; you don't really get two or three years. You know the what is the implicit fear of all Manchester United fans is that you're at the beginning of a thirty year Liverpool style wander through the desert. You know the you know, it's an underlying problem of decay. You know, that United would never reclaim the lost dominance of the Ferguson years. That is the absolute fear, is that it's a long road back to where, vaguely, where, you you know, the back end of the Ferguson years. Where United weren't dominant year in, year out, but were at least in the discussion. And the problem is, when you have decay, there isn't really a straightforward political lever that you can pull that's going to solve that issue. Whenever you have a team that's you know, very successful for an extended period of time, there's always an, you know, there's always the decline of Rome element to it, and it's what fascinates me. is how it gets rechanneled. So if you compare Liverpool in the nineties and early two thousands, they rechanneled the glory days by getting to cup finals. For them, that was the solution. Look, we may not be winning the league every single year. We may not be winning the Champions League. However, we can keep winning league cups. You win the FA Cup in 92. You win the League Cup in 95. You get to the cup final in 96. You win the UEFA Cup. You win the League Cup. You win the FA Cup. It's a treble. It's not the treble. But it's something. It is some sense that we are still Liverpool. We still go to Wembley. We still get to semi-finals. We win things. That's something. But if you look at how the Manchester United have dealt with the... The decay, the decline, the end of Ferguson. It's been rechanneled in dominance and social media and marketing on a global scale, and that's impressive and it's not unhelpful. But it doesn't—that's not going to get you three points on a Saturday. I mean, that's the only real infrastructural advantage that Manchester United have: is that when we tweet something out, the world listens in a way that Spurs don't have that power. Leicester don't really have that power. But I suppose the problem is, is that it leads to the, the rise of gesture politics. So in other words, you're doing something because you think that there's a social media benefit, a marketing benefit, then you do actually think whether that's really going to improve the, the outfit, the actual first 11, getting into the top four, winning things. And so, you know, you take re-signing Paul Pogba. You spent £85, £86 million on a player that a few years earlier you let go for free, who you developed from your youth system. And the thing is, it's almost like, ah, yes, but if we can get... You know, there's almost the belief, the need for Manchester United to be seen to be competing at the top level of the transfer market. See, we spent a load of money. This is Manchester United back in business. We are signing world-class superstars. But, in effect, for me, it almost was like the the USSR invading Afghanistan. It's a power projection, but does it have any strategic advantage? Has re-signing Paul Pogger for that amount of money actually led to a specific improvement in Manchester United's form? Have they won things? And there's been some successes, but for the most part... It's not been the home run that you'd need to have if you bought an £85 million world-class midfielder. The point is, is that it was just as much as, ah, yes, but if we sign Paul Popper, look at our social media mentions, not, is this the final piece in the jigsaw? You know, it's almost in the sense that all of the United managers in the post-Ferguson years can be described through a political lens, a political prism. You know, Moyes was very much the continuity. He was pretty much... It was almost the equivalency of the, the 2000 US election. It was putting the VP in charge. OK, we've had eight years of Clinton. That has worked. That has been successful. Won the 92 election. we got re-elected in 96. You will carry on the mantle. But the problem was, is that Al Gore ended up getting all of the blowback, all of the negatives that had come out of eight years of Clinton. You know, the rise of globalization, the you know, elements that only parts of the economy had improved. That generally, that there was large swathes of America that hadn't, you know, got many benefits out of it. So you have NAFTA, the idea that you know, people lost their jobs because they'd gone to Mexico because of the trade deal. He got all of the blowback, all of the negatives that had kind of been under the surface that had never really stuck onto Bill Clinton, but they were able to stick it on Al Gore. But none of the real credit it wasn't as if Al Gore, the vice president, was the one that was behind all of the success. That kind of goes on to, to Bill. And okay, then you you kind of have you know Van Hulle. He's the sort of the technocratic solution, the the Italian solution. We'll put a technocrat in charge. And that basically his idea, his dogma, his way of getting from A to B will be the top-down solution that will then fix all the problems that had kind of been, you know, kind of at the the decay that had settled in at the back end of Ferguson that had only been amplified by the continuity, you know, David Moyes. And so then you kind of get to Mourinho, who was really, when the technocrat failed, was the, the IMF bailout. You know, it was a shortcut. It was something to be bared as a necessary evil. It's a toxic shock. You are the messiah, but we don't, if in an ideal world, you wouldn't even be here. However, you will be able to come in and fix this and fix this very quickly because we don't want the Liverpool 30 year wander through the desert. And you're the most obvious person that can sit there and say, I can offer you the, I can reclaim the lost dominance of the Ferguson years. And I suppose it's interesting then again if you compare it to Liverpool, when, you know, you had the sort of back end when, you know, Dow resigned. They went to Sooness, who had obviously been a you know, legend at Liverpool, spent years of his career there, and then you had Roy Evans. There was an element of sort of ideological purity to it. It was trying to maintain, you know, the status quo that Liverpool got success from the boot room. It's only really sort of the late nineties, sort of almost about you know, sort of seven eight years after you know Liverpool started to decline that they went for a different option. And even then, it was Gerard Houllay coming in, but it was Gerard Houllay as co-manager with Roy Evans. It wasn't actually ideally. We'd still want there's a boot room element to it. And it's only once that really had started to fail that they grudgingly were like, OK, Gerard will have to take control. And even then, they still managed to get an assistant manager in Phil Thompson who spent years, you know, who'd been, you know, who at least had some notional, emotional attachment to, I suppose, the boot room element to it. So if we're going to go into this sort of politically, what was Moyes' problem? And I suppose the real, the deeper question at it is: Did he have it right all along? He diagnosed the solution. It required a long-term plan. You know, he'd seen that there was you know limited quality of the youth team. There had been a lack of investment in that. The training ground was tired. There was a lack of a scouting network. You know all of this from a you know political thing. It's below the waterline. It's not abundantly obvious to the ord. The audience, the fans, the people have just seen Alex Ferguson raise the Premier League title, the title that, as far as they were concerned, had been their birthright since the early nineties. You know, the Premier League was Manchester United. The years before that, when it was the Division One Championship, that was you know Liverpool, maybe Everton to a little bit, you know, Leeds in the sixties. But really, that 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 was no that wasn't United's birthright and hadn't been since the sixties. But the Premier League title was. And I suppose the point is is that when you're Sir Alex Ferguson, do you need a scouting network if you can just sign Alex Ferguson if you can sign Robin Van Persie from Arsenal? In other words, the final piece in the jigsaw that got them another league title. That was Sir Alex Ferguson's political currency. Robin, join us. I'll get you a league title. Job done. £30 million. You don't need a huge amount of an algorithm or a computer system if you can do that, and he then goes up and scores 30 league goals and you win the title. David Moyes doesn't have that. Didn't have that political capital to do that. And the point is, is that... Why was he unable to institute the solution? So he had a lack of trophies. He hadn't won anything. He'd never played for United. He'd never managed in the Champions League. Well, he had... I suppose you can say that he got Everton to qualify for the Champions League and then got knocked out in the playoffs. So he'd never managed in the group stages. He'd never managed in what we would consider the Champions League proper, when you've literally got the group stage. The playoffs is kind of, you're working towards the Champions League. You're in it, but only as far as you win. And so this is where the the element of political theatre comes in. He was the continuity candidate. That immediately forces him to accept the status quo. If you have a situation where and this is what came out publicly, Sir Alex Ferguson drives to Moyes' house and anoints him as successor. That is an act of theatre. That you know that has elements of just of the power, of the symbolism that was supposed to come from that. So Moy Moyes couldn't Imagine if you dared to criticise the state of the United Union. Effectively, you'd be qu- you know automatically questioning Ferguson's right and ability to choose him as a successor. So the problem is, is that it's almost a, a two-step issue. He wasn't the first choice. They tried the more high profiles, and really none of those high profiles were that interested in taking over from Ferguson. They didn't want to be that candidate. Who was going to have to deal with all of these issues? There were long-term problems with the squad. It was an aging squad. It it had issues, you know, issues that Ferguson had probably ignored in the last two or three years because really he was looking for one more score, one more big win, and then I can leave. So effectively, you forced the hierarchy to have to sell Moyes, it's almost a poetic candidate, the natural heir to Ferguson. He'd done exactly the same thing Ferguson had done. So he'd had a successful, you know, relatively successful playing career. He'd then worked his way up from, you know, Preston to Everton and had some success. And this was then, you know, another Scottish manager. It was going to be the next link in the chain. And in a way, you can almost argue the way how Manchester United tried to sell it was a cynical attempt to pose United as being different to the other super clubs. Well, yes, your Real Madrid might hire Jose Mourinho. You know, yes, you know, the AC Milan might you know, hire a, you know, a Carlo Ancelotti. We, on the other hand, are made of much more, you know, we're much more traditional. We've had one brilliant manager for 30 years who's Scottish, and then we've got the next great Scottish manager who's going to then do exactly what the same thing as F- Ferguson had did. And so, effectively, Moyes then had to then maintain the facade of United being contenders. You know, He couldn't sit there and say, actually, we're probably not going to be successful for two or three years, but by the end of my six-year contract, we should hopefully be back into that position, or at least competing. So the problem is, is that once you're tied to Ferguson, you then have to basically try and build enough short-term political capital to enact the long-term reforms. Otherwise, if we can just have enough short-term success, if I can just keep the wolves at the door while I'm making these changes, hopefully, you know, we'll be in a better position and we'll grow bit by bit. And I can start, you know, he can start enacting his, sort of, you know, top-down reforms. And I guess his... Moyes' political failures, which has really dogged him his whole career, is that of the fact that he's not a very good salesman. In many ways, when things go wrong for David Moyes, it's footballing equivalency of Jimmy Carter's malaise speech. The point is, is that in that speech, Jimmy Carter never used the word malaise. And you know he was being truthful. He was being realistic to the American people about where the country was. Wasn't thanked for it. You're just not going to be thanked by the electorate for pointing out the flaws. You're really there to solve the problems. So basically, when it fails, it's like, at the, you know, it's Sunderland. He was very honest about what was going wrong at Sunderland and that it wasn't, there was no short term solution. The only short term solution was just keeping them up long enough to keep the wolves at bay so that then we'll try and sort it out later which was never going to work. At some point, you know, you know, you know, Sunderland's squad was a mess, their finances were a mess, the ownership was a mess. It was always going to... Eventually, the, the house of cards was going to collapse. You know, a little bit in West Ham when he first rocked up there and was pretty much effectively saying, you have problems at this football club that have been unaddressed for an extended period of time. At which point, West Ham were like, yeah, that's fine, just, just keep us up and then we can get rid of you as quickly as humanly possible. What the, the Moyes is, you know, and he's a very good manager, What, when it works is when the truth is so starkly obvious to the electorate and supporters, they then just give him the political capital to do his work. So in other words, when he rocked up at Everton, Everton had been listing. You know, had been, if Everton was a ship, it had been literally taking on water for an extended period of time. It, you know, they were basically sleepwalking towards relegation, and so when he took over, it was like, okay, you've tried Howard Kendall, you tried Walter Smith, you tried Mike Walk, Mike Walker, you've tried all of these. You spent money, you bought foreign players, you bought young players, and it hasn't worked. What you need, I will come in and I will fix this so that you will not have to worry about relegation, and we will go on, and it worked. You know, once you hired David Moyes from Preston North End, who wasn't a well-known football figure, wasn't well-known in this country, you there there was an acceptance that you know, the hard work would have to come in. And Moyes worked at West Ham. Once they got rid of him, and then got the fancy pants manager and the guy that they then you know, gave a huge amount of money to, and said, "Make us successful, make us beautiful," and you know, here's you know, a massive amount of money thrown into it, and it failed. So by the time that you rehire David Moyes, it's like, look, things have been going wrong. You've had disquiet from the fans, you've had a bloated playing squad, and you were still on the verge of being relegated again. Just let me do my job. I will fix this. And looking at the way how they're playing this season, it's worked. And there's far less dissent from West Ham fans. The first time it was like, well... we really wouldn't want you in an ideal world. You're just here to get us out of the relegation zone. Second time around, it's far more like, well, look, we've tried so many different other options and none of them have worked in the long term. We're actually going to... We're going to stop complaining. We're going to let you do your job. And things have got better. What noise? Effectively, the moist solution, which would, you know, a lot of it would have been behind closed doors. Things that wouldn't have been obvious to the fans, to the audience. It was United's equivalent of the Pentagon Papers. It was unpalatable to United fans. The board. The idea of we actually are in a weak position. So in other words, all of the things that had really underpinned the Ferguson success... Which was the financial size, the size of Old Trafford, all of it, as I sort of hinted at earlier, have now dissipated. Man City have a huge stadium, Spurs have a huge stadium, Arsenal have a big stadium. All of these outfits have, you know, are making a huge, are, you know, much more popular, are more popular internationally. Manchester United is not the only, you know. Team that has a global following. So as a result, all of the things that really underpinned. I mean, what a lot of what Ferguson was was the sense of, you have the infrastructure. In other words, Old Trafford was the first stadium to be properly redeveloped in the nineties to a large capacity. Yeah. Manchester United were the first ones that really, you know, really had a particularly good youth system, where the manager was really interested in it and played more of a role in terms of recruitment. All of those things are now gone. And then the Ferguson brand bit was gone. In other words, I've always thought of, you know, it was almost like a trifecta, is that you had the infrastructure, which Sir Alex Ferguson helped build, and you had Manchester United as a brand that was pre-existing, that Ferguson had helped build, and that both of those infrastructure, the stadium. Old Trafford, not you know, teams didn't win there. Teams didn't get penalties there, and that the brand of Manchester United made him powerful, and all three of them just worked. All of them, the more stronger that one got, the more stronger that all three points got. And so now that's gone. You will never have that situation reoccur. Manchester United will always be a large club, a global club, but it will be competing with equals. You'll be competing with Real. You'll be competing with Barcelona, Chelsea, Man City. It's you know it's never going to get to the point where Manchester will ever have that sort of dominance ever again. Which is why then you're constantly having to what I meant. How Manchester are going to get back, and what is the process for doing so? And it's really going to have to be a political solution. It's going to need political leadership. You know, effectively, why Moyes was correct was that he'd seen the situation, had realised what the problem was, but wasn't able to sell it. He lacked a Reaganite touch. He was never able to basically say to Manchester United fans, it's morning in America. Or to say, look, maybe the next six months will be rough. However, I can lead you to the sunlit uplands. And that's why Moyes' Manchester United career wasn't unsuccessful. You know he was a you know he was a Danny Welbeck through on through at Man at Bayern Munich away from ending up in the Champions League semi-finals. If he'd taken him to the Champions League semi-final, even if he'd, maybe he'd accidentally taken them to the final, that would have been the political capital that he might have that he would have managed to I suppose have to get a second season, which I think neatly kind of leads us into you know the technocratic solution in in hiring Louis van Hal. The idea was, is that when you hire a technocrat, what you're effectively saying is that the political system that Manchester United were operating under wasn't working. It had so many flaws, so many issues, that what you need is someone with outside expertise, who will have a plan, an ideology, who will then be able to fix this. And so effectively, that's what they were doing. They were saying, look... Moyes didn't work. He lacked the experience. He didn't have the track record of managing a huge club. So why don't we hire Louis van Gaal? You know, he's had success internationally with Dutch national team taking them to third in the World Cup. He'd won the Champions League with Ajax, he'd had managed Barca, Bayern and he was a top-level brand manager. And that's a direct contrast to Moyes, and but the point is, is that again, it was broadly the right idea, but it was lazily executed. It was subcontracting reform. Really, United were searching for the Louis Van Hall of nineteen ninety five, not the Louis Van Hall of two thousand and fourteen. But the point is, is that the political risk of trying to search for a Louis Van Hall of nineteen ninety five falls onto the board. The board would have had to have basically, if it failed, so if their new messiah, who would be young, who'd be relatively inexperienced, didn't work, they would take the the hit. They'd already taken the hit for the Moyes thing. You know, In the end, yeah, you could criticise Sir Alex Ferguson maybe for picking him, but what other options were there? All the big num- names have turned it down, and really, it's not particularly palatable from a political standpoint. To have a go at Sir Alex Ferguson. Look at everything Sir Alex Ferguson has done for Manchester United. Blaming him. Would be a bit rich. So where the technocrat works is. It's the philosophy top down. So effectively they were telling him to. Be your own director of football. So what you will do is. You will. You will bring the philosophy into the youth team. You you will allow us to sign young players so that we're not competing maybe at the top end because we don't quite have the money or really the standing at this point so that's the thing we're saving money and we're also playing a little bit to the gallery because oh see Manchester United's history has always been signing young players working through the youth system but the point is is that again it's kind of lazily enacted it's Well, that'll save us some money. That'll save us some effort. In other words, Louis Van Gaal will find these young players. He will work through the youth system. He will do all of this. All we have to do is sign the checks. So, in other words, instead of trying to work out, you know, how the you re reform the youth system, how would you improve? How would you improve the facilities to compete with the Chelseas, the Man Cities, who have spent all this money on you know, and who spent years carefully reforming. Well, no, we'll just basically wholesale Louis Van Gaal will bring the IAC tradition which worked in 95. So did he really fail? Not on paper, but it was a narrative failure. Had it, I've always said this, had he finished 5th and won the FA Cup and then finished 4th? That would have guaranteed him the first third of a third season. Regardless of the aesthetics of the football, it would have been progress. You can sell progress to people. Even if it... Because you can say, "Okay, we're finally making progress. We finally, you know, Moyes finished seventh, fifth, fourth. Things can only get better. We won something. And so the problem that you have with Louis Van Gaal is is because you weren't you were signing him as a technocrat. You it was always the strength of the ideology. Yes, he had this, you know, fabulous, you know, back career. But that really wasn't what they were signing him to do. They were signing him to do the reform side of things. And the thing is, is that yes, they could have sold it had the success been Bit by bit. Because it was back to front. Because they finished fourth and then fifth. And the football was so dull. It was... You know, he'd lost that political capital. Because you've thought, well... Maybe the first year was when things were actually the best. And are things going to improve? Because his ideology was so outdated it prompted widespread dissension. People weren't buying into it. People didn't necessarily believe in what he was doing. And the reforms he was trying to bring forth were as a result you know people were less likely to trust him because what was happening is he was developing the young players. You know Rashford came through, you know a couple of other players. So it wasn't that wasn't the problem. But the problem was is that if you have these young, talented players just passing sideways, that was the thing. All he had was ideology to change. To, and that's why he, you know, where his political capital started to drain away. Because there was no change. It was, my way is the right way. The point is, is technocrats aren't people that win elections. All they basically have is the ideology and the extent to which people are willing to believe in it. So the point was is that if he made any changes, if he'd sped up at the way how they were playing football and made it more interesting, that was an admission that his philosophy was no longer de rigueur. The ego that he brings, the brand, and the certainty was from the way how his football, it was inseparable. And the thing is he'd been poisoned with the intransigence of age. That's why the Van Hall of 95 would have been a lot more successful in the Premier League than the Van Haal of t- 2014. You know, effectively Van Haal sat there and pushed all of his chips into the you know, and went all in. Either I will be my football will overcome the EPL or I will fail. You know, it was the efficacy of the reform model. And for fans, in the end, the medicine was worse than the disease. Which I think now is a good point to really say, well, were, was Moyes and Van Hal trying to achieve the same goal? You know, the thing is that the luxury that Louis Van Hal had was there was a clear out. And he had a lot more political capital because of his success and his reputation. You know, and the idea that he was more of a technocrat, whereby Moyes was more of a... It's more of a firefighter. In other words, Moyes was someone who was a battler and you know, his teams were always you know, his Everton teams were always battling the odds. You know, Goodison Park isn't as nice a stadium as Anfield. Everton don't have the, the, the history of success that Liverpool have. His Everton teams never really got results against, you know, Liverpool. It was always, you know, whenever Everton got somewhere, you know, when they finished in the top four, that was great, finished above Liverpool. Liverpool won, won and won, went and won the Champions League was that kind of scenario, whereby sort of with Louis van Gaal, it was, oh, I've had some success out in Germany. I've had some success in Spain, relatively speaking. I've had success at in international level. So, you know, there was so much more he could do. He had a bit more money as well. So his idea was, was that the ideology, the football infrastructure would improve the youth players, negate any weaknesses in the transfer market. The young players would suit his style, you know, like Memphis Depay, who'd had success at the World Cup under his managership, and it would centralise his power in the Fergusonian manner. And so you sign a Bastion Swintag as a short-term you know, stabiliser, whereby Moyes was far more on the infrastructure side of it. You know, it was, I'll restructure the coaching staff, I'll get rid of Ferguson's coaching staff. I'll start to you know improve the recruitment side of things, and that would put us on par with the top level clubs, allowing us to make the targeted, cost effective signings. That would basically put us back into success. In other words, I will bring some of the why you know, I will bring the methodology from my success at Everton. You know, get signing U K Hill signing Fellaini, all those kind of smart signings. I will be able to bring that to you, and use you know the Manchester United brand as well. So what I'll do is I'll sign Fellaini and Baines, the short-term bridge to stabilise, you know, the first team, while Moyes worked on the internal empire building in the Fergusonian manner. So when Ferguson brought in Jim Leighton, the goalkeeper from Aberdeen, you know, when he got rid of the drinking culture, when he took more interest in the first team, in the youth team even. So that was it. They were both trying to do similar things, and both of them, if you were to ask them now. What is your theory? What is your viewpoint on your Manchester United era? Both of them will tell you, we never had enough time. We never, you know, the job was half done. We just needed, both of us needed more time. Which then leads you very neatly onto Mourinho. So if we've we've agreed, the previous managers, you know, basically were both sacked and they said, I need more time. And this was when the hierarchy, so you're talking about Woodward, you're talking about the board, you're talking about the Glazers to a lesser extent, were more self-competent. In other words, Edward was two hires at some point were showing a little bit of timidity. Yeah, I, I'm an inexperienced chief executive. I'm going to listen to Alex Ferguson when he tells me David Moyes is the best you know, person for the job. Um, OK, that hasn't worked. I need a big name manager. I will trust that you know when Louis van Gaal tells me his ideology will solve everything, he'll be his own director of football, everything you know will be top-down, will be solved. That's great. That didn't work. It shows more self-confidence when they basically decided, OK, we're now in complete control of this. We've got far more experience. We're going to go, you know, we're, we'll take control of this process. And it was the thought process was simple. Mourinho offered fame, short term success. All he notionally required was control, which they're happy to give. You know, Ed Woodward is not someone that gives huge amounts of, you know, doesn't do huge amounts of interviews, isn't a big personality, doesn't want, you know, he's not a Steinbrenner in that regard. So he was quite happy to give Mourinho that control and resource. In other words, Manchester United were now making a lot more money. Yeah, you know, if it's all it's going to take is hiring Mourinho, who will help fame, that will help the social media, that will help the marketing side of it, which we're already improving and getting world-class results from, and we have all these pots of money, that will then solve the problem. You know, they had, you know, the financial acumen, they had had abundance of money. But the problem was is that where the political side of it failed was that the success Mourinho offered in you know, the League Cup and Europa League and second in, in his first two seasons would not mollify the fans. You know, it hadn't mollified them sufficiently. You know, they saw United significantly behind Man City in terms of points, in terms of winning things, in terms of stylistically. But the point was is that you hadn't hired Jose Mourinho with a reform mandate. Moyes decided to give himself a reform mandate, and that was what was you know poisoned that spell. Louis van Gaal had complete you know reform, but the problem is is that what structural reform could Jose Mourinho have done that was going to catch up to Man City, who had spent years, years and years and years carefully waiting, carefully doing bit by bit. And this is where, with Mourinho, there was was no political levers for him to pull. All he could really ever say was, I need more resources, more signings. The point is, when he rocked up at Chelsea the first time round, you already had the bits and pieces. You had a team that got to the semi-finals of the Champions League. You had a team that was you know, competing in the top three. All of the bits and pieces were there. You had the money. That, you know, Abramovich was putting in what they needed, was a manager that had more of a cutting edge than Claudio Ranieri. And that's exactly what Jose Mourinho had. He was going to tie them up at the back. He was going to add that, just that glamour and that cutting edge of... We are going to smash the glass ceiling. Chelsea are going to win the league. So, you know, had, you know, hypothetically, had Claudio Ranier stayed another year at Chelsea, could they have won the league? Yeah, that squad was more than good enough. But the point was is that no one, you know, Claudio had lost that political capital. You know, The, the defeat to Monaco, the bad substitutions falling apart. There was a sense that people just saw him as, not a serial winner, whereby Jose had that. Jose was, I will get you wins. I am the special one. And so really, so the point was is that there wasn't a huge amount of actual squad reform that, that Jose had to do. You know, the defence was already there. You, There were just targeted signings, but the actual structure was there. You know, you had Claude Makélélé, you had Petr Cech, you had Lampard, you had Drogba, you, know, you had Joe Cole. There was you know, Robin. You had all of the bits and pieces there. But United didn't have that. Yes, they had talent that talent in the youth system. But there was no structure. The Moyes way of playing was completely different to the Van Gaal way of playing, which was different to the Ferguson way of playing. So what could you do? They, they were slightly young at times. They were slightly old. There was a lack of talent. And there was... When you're brought in purely to win and to win now and you weren't particularly popular with Man United fans at the beginning all you could do is win but he didn't win enough which is why when you compare it to Spurs he has spent much less money than he did at Manchester United but because you had Son because you had Harry Kane because you had Hugo Lloris you already had a Toby Alderweireld you already had enough Signature pieces. You had an, a sense of a club that had been finishing in the top four on a regular basis. That's that's where you basically you have a structure. You had a structure at Real Madrid. You had a structure to a lesser extent at Inter Milan. What Jose basically needs to be successful is a need for a a shock. Mourinho was the shock at Chelsea. He was, I am not as nice as Claudio, but I will get you success. What he offered at Inter Milan was, you've always finished second. You never finish above Juventus. You do not have that winning mentality. I will be the winning mentality. Same thing, you've been at Real Madrid. You've been finishing for so long behind Barcelona. You've been second in everything. You keep getting knocked out the second round of the Champions League, year after year after year. Under me, you know, take Cristiano, take all the other, you know, the quality that was already there. I will mean, I will give you a league title over, you know, the La Mesa I will give you a league title over Barcelona. I will take you to the point where you could win a Champions League. At United, none of that pre-existing structure was there. There was only bits and pieces. And so the more that he basically had that one lever, which was money, and the knowledge that, OK, if I just make another two or three signings, if you just give me one, two or three more players, I will somehow try and basically just jam it into to a success. And that will then, you know, basically hopefully mollify the fans more than enough to then, you know, get it to so I have another year. And so the problem was the more that you asked for resources and the transfer money, they ebbed away. You know, both public confidence in him. You know, it darkened his mood. And really, in the end, the collision course was always going to be what point would the Manchester United board say, I'm not going to give you any more money. You've already spent X number of money. And the thing is, is that part of the problem was with spending loads of money at United is that they don't have the, really, the infrastructure nor really the... Cache the cultural cache that they used to have, that the, the, that lured players to them because of Sir Alex, because the brand, because of the winning. You know, going to Manchester United isn't really. There are places that you can have, make loads of money, and win. You know, and it's a lot easier. You know, you have Bayern, you have Paris Saint Germain, Chelsea, Man City. You know, obviously at the moment Real and Barcelona are struggling, but eventually, you know when things get back to normal on a financial basis, there's always going to be a sense that they're going to dominate Spanish football. Whereby, United, it's it's far more hard yards. In other words, look at Pogba, who was loved by the fans, and look at how difficult that's been. How, you know, the, the battles, the... Just the pressure that is on you know, top-level Manchester United players, because you have the fans, you have the media, and this expectation... That, you know, you have to compete. And you're dealing with outfits such as Liverpool and Man City who are on a much stronger basis in terms of their infrastructure and in terms of their... Once the board turned down Mourinho for money, that was it. That was the end. There was just not enough building blocks and there was not enough belief among United fans. In other words, they were going to... If there was a reason to distrust Jose, they were going to jump on top of that. So who is to blame? Ownership. <laughs> Far too content to remain in the shadows. You know, they failed to engage the fans with emotional appeals, or even retain grudging acceptance of competency, or competent stewardship. You know, they failed to maintain Old Trafford. Yeah. You know, and with the contention- and once you factor in the contentious way, the Glaze family took over the club, there will always be the substantial the suspicion that as long as the underlying finances are healthy, that they don't really care all that greatly. You know, it's a failure of leadership. It's a failure of communication. It's created a power vacuum below. You know, at executive and football operations level. You know, really the question is, what do they want United to be? You know, how do they want them to be successful? What plan do they have in place to build the next United, the next great United side? Okay, so we'll take the board, so the hierarchy, so Woodward. You know, with him, you have a double whammy of poor timing and a toxic narrative. You know, he he was placed in a position where he was learning on the job. He had he lacked industry specific experience, and he was the one making club altering decisions. You know, the predecessors were bathed in the success of the Ferguson era. And they had left with their reputations intact, before the sh- basically before the shit was going to hit the fan. The thing is, the intervening years have not led to significant sense of having improved on the job. Yes, the marketing and financial sides have been massively improved. But they've not been able to utilise that rare sense of competence. It's not part of a holistic attempt to improve relations with the fan. It, it highlights the disconnect with the local supporters. In other words, why, but when I talk about local supporters, I'm talking about people that week in, week out, go to Old Trafford. People that live in Manchester. People that live in England, UK, you know, who are massive Manchester United fans. I think Manchester United's international fans and the you know, Woodward and the hierarchy and the, the club itself are quite strong. The relationship is quite good. Manchester United are very good at social media and getting the message out to the world. What they are not really very good at is dealing with, you know, the people on the ground, the people reading the Manchester Evening News. That's where those people are not happy. And the more that you in, the more that you impress the international fans, the more that you are generally antagonising the local fans. You know, the dithering over to deciding whether to reform, whether to hire a director of football. You know, and the fact is, is that when you see political weakness in an institution, it's the idea of. You make bad decisions or you dither over decisions or you constantly keep making changes. while at the same time, simultaneously, you are trying to centralise your power. So in other words, Ed Woodward is not particularly good at, at picking out football managers. But my God, is he not going to give up the power to hire these managers, which just makes it, you know, it, it creates a really particularly vicious cycle the point is they haven't closed the gap with man city and infrastructure level what they have done is they've done gesture politics you know it's basically managerial hires that just like well we'll move on to this one uh, jose will give us all success uh, van Hal will you know do all the reform uh, we can sell Moyes as the second coming sir alex ferguson uh, ole will be popular with the fans. That, that, that'll do. That'll, that'll solve this crisis. It's firefighting. But there's no vision. There's no plan. There's not a long term structure. Like, if you study Daniel Levy, there is always a plan. There is always a structure. It doesn't always work, but you can see what he was trying to do. So, okay, I will try and get the a, you know, a director of football in, you know, Frank Arneson. Okay, well, that didn't work. Well, we'll then, you know, we'll. we'll we'll have the side bit, we'll, have the, we'll build the stadium, we'll build the training ground. However, we need someone who will basically get the football team to have the success that means that you need a 60,000 stadium. In other words, Spurs in mid-table need about a 36,000-seater stadium. Spurs competing for the top four, yeah, they need a 60,000-seat stadium. If you're trying to build that, in other words, if you're trying to build the international you know, trying to get more Spurs fans internationally, but at the same time you're trying to keep you know Spurs fans who will turn up to the stadium happy. I think the point is is that not everyone loves Daniel Levy, but most people can accept that he gets a good deal for Spurs. You know that he's willing to battle, whereby Edward Wood isn't really willing to do that. Only time that he really said no to a manager was when you know he turned down Jose for money, but. What options did Jose have? Jose is not a reform manager. He is someone who basically, you know, the cake needs to be there. He will ice it and put the cherry on top and add the glamour to it. It will look like the most amazing cake. It will look like the most beautiful cake and all. It may not be, maybe bland as hell, but if it looks like a winner. That is what he does. What he is not is in the kitchen sitting there picking out all the ingredients. That's not really what Jose is, or what the success you're going to get from him. You know, what structure does Edward would think is required in football operations to build the next great United side? And yeah, there is an element that the supporters have to take some element of blame. You know, in on some levels. They've been admirably resilient in the face of substandard ownership. Yeah, it's really hard to see how anyone can meaningfully build the next great United side in the face of a fan base that is alternately wallowing in the past while raging that the present side is not matching their illustrious forebears. But without affording the squad the time and patience that Ferguson required to build it in the first place. The thing is, and this is, I think, one of the key, if, if you, you know, politicians and political structures are, at some extent, at the mercy of the audience that they have, the electorate, and in this case, it's the fans. What do they want United to resemble? Is it an All-Star PSG or a Real Madrid with a famous name-brand coach? Or do they want a predominantly homegrown helmed by a young ambitious coach with progressive ideas and a five-year plan? And at times, it feels like United fans want some combination of both. They want the the certainty that a name brand manager gets. They also want something that, you know, covers the the United Well, not it's not myth, but the, the United traditions. In other words, you know, I've had arguments with, with a friend of mine who's a United fan over whether they should hire Pochettino in comparison with Ole. The point is, is that Pochettino has a track record which matches the Manchester United job. You know it is, It's a philosophy, it's a style of football, it looks good, it can utilise young players, it has had success in the Premier League, it can get you competing for the league and it has had success in Europe and he has that broad experience. He has Premier League experience. He has taken a team that were finishing somewhere between 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, and then taken to the next level, which is where United are. But the point was, it was like, but but I want Ole to be successful. It's like, yeah, but look at Ole, compare Pochettino's track record with Ole. Ole's had some success with Mould in Norway. And the point is, when you're one of Norway's most famous football players, yeah, you're going to have the, the political capital to take mould and make them successful. And that's that's impressive, but you know, that's not that doesn't jump off the, the page. You know, Ronnie Delia had success in Norway. The point is, is that when he went to Celtic, which is a much bigger job there was nowhere near the same level of success. That's the point. If Ronnie Delia found the Celtic job too big, then Ole Gunnar Solskjaer taking the Manchester United job is a similar situation, and he hadn't had success at Cardiff. Whereby, if you're sitting there looking at... Pochettino's had, you success at at Southampton, shoe success at Spurs. That is a track record that you can rely upon. And so this is the point. It's almost a sense of a lack of leadership and a rage that begets Ole. You know, he is, in terms of politics, the Indian solution. He is the Scyon, you know, the Rahul Gandhi. Well, what is Rahul Gandhi's main qualification? I'm Indira Gandhi's grandson. You know, it, you know, whether he's a good administrator or anything else, it is, I, am, I have the, the history, that track record that, you know, through birth, you know, through connections, rather than actually something far more tangible, something that you can sit down and say, OK, he's done X, Y, different job. And it's an illusion of maintaining the Ferguson era with a descent who's steeped in the culture and the history rather than really focusing on skills, qualifications and track record. And that's the point, it betrays Woodward's intrinsic weakness for the political expedient, the crown-pleasing move, than the more fraught and torturous reform required for long-term success. The point is, the classic example is when he made Ole permanent while on an upswing. The point is, when you have Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, you know he is never going to get a bigger job than the Manchester United job. It is his dream job. It's not a situation where he's going to... You know, if he if he demanded the job in March and you said no, that he was going to walk or he was going to take another job, you have all of the leverage. So yes, you wait until the end of the season. You just see how it goes. If he continues to have the success, you can make it at the end of the season. If and the point is when you have one upswing, because things were so negative under Mourinho. Anyone that came in that was was going to look like a ray of sunshine in comparison. But the point is is that they panicked. Ooh. The point is there's no long-term strategy. The thing is you can hire a temporary manager. Like, you know, Bar, you know, Bayern Munich had done so. But the point is Hansi Flick had a track record, again, which was more impressive. And he had a better understanding, a more likelihood that he was going to be successful than... Ole. The thing is, is that Ole undoubtedly knows what he wants Manchester United to look like. And what the fans are yearning for. But it's a return to Fergusonian dominance. You know, the real question is, how will he achieve it? By he, I mean, what is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer personally going to do? The point is, saying it's a bit like, you know, I could solve Manchester United's problems in about ten minutes. The point is, that you say, you, know, you utilise you know, Manchester United's youth success, you improve improved the infrastructure there. It ha- there has been some money put in, things have improved, they have some young players. You need a Manchester United team that is playing positive attacking football, because that's generally the type of football that will get you high-end success, which is what Manchester United fans crave, and that helps your international fan base. Yeah, that helps sell the product. And so what you need to do is you don't necessarily need to focus on high-end buys. What you have to do is have to have a scouting structure and a philosophy. And this philosophy has to be positive. It has to be near the cutting edge. You have to be basically formulating a, a brand of football that will basically compete with Bayern and Liverpool. So it has to be, and that has to be then married up with what you currently have in the short term. The point is, is that is... All lovely and straightforward. You can build around Rashford. You can build around Greenwood. You, you've you got De Gea. You have Dean Henderson. You, know, you, can, you can use Maguire. You know, you've got Fred, you know, Fernandez. You have building blocks. But the point is, is that, that it's very straightforward. But how do you actually do it? And this is the question that, that, that Ole has yet to answer. Yes, there have been long periods of good results. They can go on a run. Are they any closer to actually competing, not just to get into the top four, but get past that? In other words, competing for fourth is doable. Harry Redknapp took Spurs to fourth. Andre Villas-Boas nearly took Spurs to fourth. You no, know, are playing, You know, Martin Joel nearly took Spurs to fourth. The point is, is that the manager, the only there's only one manager that took them beyond that, and that was, Pochettino, and that's the one who had a style of football. A philosophy that worked. Beyond that, who basically not just got you out of the group stage of the championship, but got you to the final. And I think this is the point with Ole. He's not used any of his political capital to demand a director of football. And there's nothing in his track record at Mould or Cardiff. You know, he's utilised all of the Fergusonian levers. Buying promising young players from the lower leagues. Dan James. Expensive English talent. Aaron wambasaka bissaka talent from the academy. But what else? What is their style of football? It is effectively counter-attacking. It often struggles at home. When they go on a downswing, it's not just one or two bad results. When things go wrong, they get hammered. You know in this Champions League, they had done all the hard work. They'd got the result out in Paris. That you know they had beaten RB Leipzig. You know, really, what they needed to do was to get the result against Istanbul-Bassica here. But then, you know, the ta- you know it just fell apart. You know, the result, you know, the tactics against Leipzig, just, they were out-thought. And the point is, yeah, they had nearly, they nearly got out of the group. But the point is, would they have got any further? Would they have got to the quarter funds? Or would they have not come against a Bayern and a Liverpool who would have torn them apart? The thing is, is that when you're losing 6-1 to Spurs... When you're you know being beaten by Istanbul Basak here, it is just not really acceptable. If you can't sit there and say, "Well, how has he improved as a manager?" I don't think he's massively improved. I think it's just the same year over and over again. Things can go well. They can you know, and they've got good players. You know, Manchester United in these post-Ferguson years, they've never been a bad side. The lowest they finished is seventh. They've won the League Cup. They've won the Europa League. they won the FA Cup. They've finished in the top four several times. they finished second. They're not terrible. What they're not is there's a lack of leadership. There's a lack of a plan. Yes, you've, you've got all the fundamental pieces, but if you sign Donny van der Beek, well, what were you, why did you sign him? What were you trying to achieve by signing him? Were you going to try and convert him into a kind of box-to-box midfielder, someone who was going to be a pass master? Well, how does that work if you're going to compi- keep Pogba? How's that gonna work with Fernandez? What sort of defensive midfielder are you going to need then to cover that? And it's all of those bits and pieces that you don't see. You know, in other words, you sign Cavani. Yeah, Cavani's a quality football player. You know, I'm... but is he a long-term option or is he just a short-term buyer because he's got name brand recognition who will score you some goals? But if that damages Greenwood, then well, how long is Cavani going to stay? It's all of those questions. There's no tactical improvement. There's no guiding principle other than his status as a good club man. You know, you know, he's always talking about the past. The United that once were and what I suppose his idea is is that he will be the, I suppose, manifestation of it. He will bring back 1999, which I don't think is possible. Really, what you're trying to do is you're trying to bring, you know, Twenty twenty two, you know, you're trying to build the next great United team, not try and, you know, recreate the the success of the nineties, which is just not relevant or applicable to today. It'd be like someone walking in at Spurs and saying, I'm going to bring back the glory days of Bill Nicholson. It doesn't work. You can't you can't do that. There isn't those levers, there isn't those options. What you have to have is something that's actually cutting edge. You know, you need a vision, a visionary. You need a reformer. You need a track record that, and the plans to wean the hierarchy and the fans off of the short term political fix. Thank you for listening.